Welcome to this edition of the Perpetual Notion Machine. I am your host, Patrick Seibel. There's an air of excitement as we enter late autumn and prepare to witness one of the world's greatest animal migrations. Sandhill cranes are crossing the continent again, and they're coming through Wisconsin. Tonight, we welcome back Dr. Richard Belfus to talk about the Sandhill crane migration and the upcoming Great Midwest Crane Fest in early November. Cranes have been a popular subject on WORT during the spring migration. WORT's shows included Everybody Loves Cranes on a Public Affair with Paul Robbins from the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. That show featured the Crane Census Program, supported by volunteer citizen scientists. And also in April, efforts to save the endangered whooping crane were featured on the 8 o'clock buzz with Rich Belfus, our returning guest tonight. Dr. Belfus is President and Chief Executive Officer of the International Crane Foundation in Baraboo. He is a professional hydrologist with a Ph.D. in land resources. Belfus has engaged in water management and wetland restoration efforts in more than 20 countries with particular focus on Nepal, Vietnam, Mozambique, and Zambia. Hello, Rich. Welcome to the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, glad to be here today. Should we start out with some background on the International Crane Foundation? So the International Crane Foundation, you may know, we're, up, we're headquarters up in Baraboo, Wisconsin, about an hour or so north of Madison, although our work is really worldwide. We've got offices now in, uh, in China and in Beijing, in Ho Chi Minh City of Vietnam, in four countries in Africa and um, down in Texas. So we kind of work where the cranes are. And um, they're one of the most endangered family of birds in the world. So a lot of our work for decades has been around trying to save these rare birds, mostly through saving their habitat, wetland conservation, and the surrounding lands that support those wetlands and other work. And then um, a lot of our work also is is what I call through the charisma of cranes in that cranes are really uh, these culturally unique and very iconic birds. They're the biggest flying birds on earth, and a lot of people connect with them uh, spiritually, culturally, uh, ornithologically, if you're so inclined, a birder, and so on. And so um, people really connect with the birds, and then we try to uh, work to engage people uh, to work together to conserve these these birds across political borders and in all kinds of areas. So that's really our mission. There are 15 cranes worldwide. Uh, a lot of them in Asia and Africa, but we have two right here um, in the U.S. and in Wisconsin, the Sandhill Crane, which will be what this festival is all about, and the Whooping Crane, which is actually the rarest bird in uh, North America. Uh, very few of them left, um, and, and our, our very successful Sandhill Crane. With, with such an international focus, um, how did you end up in uh, Baraboo as the headquarters? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We uh, we ended up in Baraboo. The, the two founders of the International Crane Foundation were both graduate students at Cornell University in New York. And uh, George Archibald, who's still with us today uh, as one of our co-founders, um, he, uh, he had done his Ph.D. work on captive cranes and built up a collection at Cornell, a number of those birds coming from the Bronx Zoo and other places. And when he finished his Ph.D. work, he had to find a place to keep these birds. And um, he met a guy named Ron Sawi, and they both loved cranes. And Ron's parents had a horse farm in Baraboo and said, well, you can bring the cranes here. And <laughs> that's essentially the origin story. The International Crane Foundation launched out of that work. And 
from day one was always this mix of, of a captive flack that people could experience of cranes of the world and where we did research um, and in some cases reintroduction and all of those captive birds and then a global focus on the cranes of the world um, trying to secure them and especially secure uh, habitat for them in many places so we, we've always had this uh, kind of you know odd <laughs> odd location uh, given where we work in the world right in Baraboo but that's that's how we ended up there. And you've worked quite a bit overseas you've also lived in Africa yeah, we uh, ironically, I left left the Crane Foundation for about four years back in the late uh, 2000s, 20, 2010s, I guess you call them, uh, to, uh, to uh, live in Mozambique. But it was really a, an offshoot of work, you know, we've been doing and I've been involved with for a long time, which is it's really how to secure cranes by taking a landscape perspective, uh, restoring water systems and wetlands and surrounding upland systems. Sometimes those are um, around farms and farm management, and sometimes they're around grasslands or, or more natural um, ecosystems. But that's really been been my focus with the Crane Foundation, and, and a big part of our focus more generally is, is um, both trying to secure cranes through better wetland and watershed management and so on, or trying to work through cranes to, to um, through people's connection to those birds to do better things in those surrounding landscapes. So, yeah, for been at it for a long time. We have many projects in Africa right now that I'm excited about, and they're all kind of dealing with these, these big issues of um, habitat loss, uh, poverty, uh, human poverty in the areas where cranes live, and, and how to help those communities uh, more and more work around climate change and water stress and, and many issues there. So is that more just working directly with those communities, or are there also is there a component of trying to secure that land, like like say the Nature Conservancy would do? Right. Yeah. Good question. You know, our work is a mix of trying to support protected areas like national parks or national wildlife refuges. In some cases, trying to create them and support them, and in other cases, working right on lands owned by communities. Uh, a lot of our work in East Africa is on wetlands that are owned by local communities and surrounded by communities. But the thing with, with in most of the places we work, whether the areas are protected or they're owned by the communities, most of our work is with those communities because they, they are trying to eke out a living from these same lands um, that cranes use. And a lot of the issues we're working on really apply to people in so many cases. And, and um, in some cases, people are sort of threats to the birds, but in a lot of cases, the factors affecting people like lack of water, uh, lack of safe water and, and um, losses in surrounding landscapes and all, they, they, they're affecting people and cranes. So a lot of our work is around engaging communities, trying to support community uh, livelihoods, helping uh, identify and train leadership in communities to, to uh, uh, get more involved in conservation and work with, um, with local decision makers and so on. Oh, that's excellent. Let's uh, focus a bit more now uh, specifically on um, the routes or the, the migration that's coming up here for the Sandhills. Can you comment about the routes and, and how they, uh, what we actually are, are going to experience here shortly? You bet. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of populations of sandhill cranes, so this gets a little confusing for people. Nationwide, there's uh, about a one and a half million sandhill cranes across all their flyways. So they really have, have come back amazingly well in the last 100 years, about 70 years, really. It's an incredible uh, recovery story. But there's a huge flyway in the central part of the U.S. where most of the birds are. 
um, those birds are famous for breeding all across Canada and then funneling through a pretty narrow area of Nebraska and Kansas, including the um, Platte River of Nebraska, and then, then going down south. So that flyway is separate from ours. I just I bring that up because some people have been out west and seen that amazing uh, spectacle of, of hundreds of thousands of, of sandhill cranes out on the Platte River out west. We run a lot of trips out there. But we're, we are developing our own amazing show here in the Midwest, and our birds here, our sandhills, are called greater sandhill cranes. Um, they're separate from that more western population, and they funnel in. They breed up in Ontario and then in big numbers in Wisconsin over in Michigan, and sort of eastern part of the U.S., and then they come down south, and they go to the, the southeastern part of the U.S. So like our birds here um, in Wisconsin that are breeding here in Wisconsin, they will gang up in big numbers uh, while they're doing so right now. October, November, maybe early December, if it's a calm, uh, kind of a not, a not so wintry year. And then they start to gang up in bigger and bigger numbers. And then finally, they'll migrate south, um, pretty much as far south as they need to go to get through the winter. Uh, so they want to be able to feed and have open water and all. So they'll go to southern Indiana, southern Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, you know, parts of Georgia, Alabama, even into Florida sometimes. So they're, they're heading down there. So we're catching these birds in their final days in Wisconsin for the year before they head down south and southeast. And then they'll come, up, they'll come back again in the spring. But our big crane show is in the, in the fall when the, when the birds really gang up in these huge numbers. Uh, and they, when they come back in the spring, they're in smaller flocks and it's not quite such a spectacular show. I had one uh, listener from Illinois, Katya, and she asked me about the, one of the things I think you just touched on there. She said specifically she's seen 5 to 20 cranes in a group or a little bit later when there's more of a, a surge that, you know, she'd see 30 to 60. Did they all kind of meet up and to, to travel together? Right, and you can get really big numbers flying through. There's a place just east of Chicago, um, in Indiana, uh, where you get huge numbers, uh, more than 10,000 sandhill cranes uh, ganging up together. Um, and there are spots where you get a little bit out of the urban part of the city and into outlying areas where you can get really big numbers. And here in Wisconsin, on our um, on the Wisconsin River, which is our hot spot here, there are some fantastic roost sites. In fact, this week, we're doing a roost count uh, led by the International Crane Foundation, and we'll count you know, uh, in a good year, more than 10,000 birds on the Wisconsin River, sort of between, you know, just downstream of the Dells and then downriver to Spring Green. So the cranes will, will gang up at night in big numbers on sandbars on the river. And that's where they will, uh, they'll roost overnight and then they'll go out during the day and they'll feed out on waste grain in uh, farmed areas um, until they migrate south for the winter. Do they wait for a, is this triggered by weather? I think one year uh, I was just kind of waiting for that clear day with the north wind, and it never came. And then we saw, actually on New Year's Day, we saw cranes fly over. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's partly, you know, likely our changing climate and our more mild winters, and it's partly just the specifics of a, of a winter in a given year. And we don't always know exactly what's going to cue the birds to finally fly south. They do seem to have a sixth sense about it, whether they're reading, you know, barometric pressure or whatever they're, they're really tuned into. But usually if there's a big wind, so a wind pushing from the north to the south, 
somewhere sort of mid to late November as temperatures are dropping, that's a pretty good cue for them into December. They're not going to migrate south in the fall without a nice big north wind. They're, they're big birds, and they like that push. Uh, they'll, they'll never migrate unless, they, unless they're absolutely desperate. They'll never migrate against the winds um, as they head south. So they're kind of looking for those conditions. There's a lot of waste grain especially corn out on the fields here and they will um, they'll feed heavily on that and bulk up add some energy and then they'll fly they'll fly south uh, when they feel like they're uh, probably when the when the worst of the weather is really coming in from their standpoint the worst weather is not so much the cold but would be burying all the corn fields in deep enough snow that they'd really struggle to find food so that's that's that would be their biggest worry they're they're pretty well protected with their feathers against um, against the cold so they'll, they'll stay fairly late in the year birds that collect in the uh, in your in the area there by um, near baraboo are those coming from the north like um, you, another hour north of you is Nasita, and then there's there's horicon where you see a lot of birds fly through are they coming from right. one of those desti- one of those yeah it's, it's that and more they're, they're a mix the, the horicon birds mostly will fly a little bit more to the east of us they're probably less they're more likely to stay to some wetland areas to the east and not come over us but Nasita birds will kind of funnel through this area uh attracted to the wisconsin river and the birds that are coming through are, are a mix of birds so i can sort of sort out those piles you you have um the birds that bred right here in wisconsin and then once their chicks are plighted for the year, they've fully fledged and they can fly, those family groups will start to gang up. Um, and then you have the birds that didn't breed during the year in the Wisconsin area that have stayed as little floater flocks, we call them sort of teenage gangs roaming around. They they will stay together and they'll start to join up with those family groups. And that'll be some of our flocks that you'll see first in the fall is that mix of uh, Sandhills that bred here and sandhills that didn't breed but are kind of moving around in small flocks and all, sometimes big flocks. And then, um, and we've actually got birds coming down from Ontario as well uh, and from northern Wisconsin that have bred up there. And when we get to our peak numbers here, they're all starting to really build up like on on the Wisconsin River. We don't know exactly because a lot of these birds are not marked, but we're getting, you know, a mix of, of at that point of birds that are breeding in in Ontario and Wisconsin, and then a bunch of birds that are still youngsters that aren't breeding yet, um, and they'll all mix together. And that, that's what we're seeing now. And when, we hope when we have our festival in a few weeks, that'll be those those flocks will be getting close to their peak numbers for the year. They'll start to build up into the many thousands in our area. Do you do you get whooping cranes in there? Is that a possibility? We do sometimes get whooping cranes in there. As, as the re- listeners may know, we have very few, just about 80 whooping cranes in the entire state of Wisconsin. Some are uh, out towards Horicon area, some are out towards Mesita area, and a few scattered elsewhere. And if the timing is right, they will move through um, with sandhills. They've definitely been seen in sandhill flocks here. Most of the time, they are in smaller groups, but we have, um, we, the, the whoopers are in with smaller groups, but we we do see them. And we see whoopers at many of the uh, staging and wintering areas of sandhill cranes as well. So, for example, last winter I was down in Alabama at Wheeler National Wildlife Refuge, which is a um, uh, a refuge that was set up for sandhills and other birds down on the northern border of Alabama. And down there, there was about ten, maybe fifteen thousand sandhill cranes and about four to five whooping cranes mixed up in there. So everybody was very excited to get out and and see those birds uh, spending the winter together. So it's it's a little bit like that here. We can have a flock coming through and 
it may feel a little bit like a needle in a haystack where you've got one whooping crane and this huge flock of sandals, but the whoopers really stand out. They're bright white, much taller. You know, you probably won't miss them uh, if, you, if you see one on the ground with sandhills. Uh, sometimes in bad light, a sandhill can look kind of whitish and people will confuse them, but um, whoopers are much bigger. <laughs> so they, they really do stand out. Yeah. Let's um, move on to your uh, the, the, the conservation and management and how it, it ties to the uh, Great Midwest uh, Crane Fest. Sure. So I think to understand the, the conservation management of sandhill cranes, it's, it's good to know you know, how they recovered, how they came back. So back in the, uh, around the turn of the last century, so the end of the 1800s into the early to mid 1900s, you know, we lost a lot of wildlife and a lot of birds during that time period uh, as, our, as our landscape changed. You know, most of our prairies went under the plow. We had a lot of wetland loss um, and, and the birds were market hunted very heavily. Some of the wildlife up here, including sandhill cranes, was hunted very, very heavily. And if you go and, and Google sources of sandhill hunting 100 years ago, you'll see you'll see hunters with just stacks, and you know, stacks of the birds, sometimes hundreds with one hunter uh, posing. So much like we lost a lot of other birds during that period, like our passenger pigeons and so on, we the sandhills were just about lost then. And then we had a couple of things happen. One was the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which really um, put in important protections to limit that market hunting, get, get, and if there is hunting, get it down to a sustainable level, and then start to think about the landscape um, that migratory birds need uh, and protections they need. And really since that time, sandhills have been on this long, steady recovery. It's been a very good, very exciting recovery since that time. And besides the, the regulations that came with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, the two other things that I think were so important one was um, uh, wetland restoration efforts and wetland conservation efforts, people starting to recognize the importance of wetlands as habitat for many different bird species, for cranes, of course, many others, and also not only as habitat but importance on our landscape uh, for water filtration and flood control and, and other things, important values on our landscape. So wetland conservation was one big piece. And the other was just farmers themselves. Cranes really adapted well farmland started feeding on waste grain and um, and farmers you know essentially welcomed cranes back on their lands and that's where a lot of the cranes are they actually you know we we've restored all this prairie at the International Crane Foundation we've done a lot of landscape restoration back uh, to the period 100 200 years ago before the land was changed and um, the uh, the sandals often will bypass that prairie restoration and go straight for surrounding cornfields and feed on those they, they really like that waste grain that's down there. And they, when they're on farms, they also eat earthworms and um, other insects that are on there and grubs and all sorts of things. It just seems like a bit of a diet change. A hundred years ago, if you had all these wetlands, they were probably eating other uh, aquatic uh, creatures, frogs. or That's or, right. Yeah. And they still do. So what they, they, wetlands are still really important. I know when, when we're driving around and, all, and we see sandhills, we're most likely to see them on farmlands or in parks or wherever, but they still really need wetlands. It's where they raise their chicks um, to have protection from predators. They build a nest out in those wetlands so they can hear predators in the water at night when it's very dark and hard to see. Um, and so they really need wetlands and they feed their chicks when they're little on lots of insects and all kinds of life in those wetlands. So they have a critical role. And then when the birds get a little older, 
uh, and the chicks can fly and walk further, that's when they go pretty heavy on those um, those farmlands. So they, they, they need both, and they do have a natural diet, especially when they're little guys, when the chicks are small, but then they switch over to that, to that agriculture. So that kind of tells you when you're thinking about management and wildlife management for cranes, you need that mix. You need healthy farms with waste grain, and you need wetlands in or around those farms. They'll fly a couple of miles. Uh, between feeding and roosting areas, but not all that far. They stay they stay pretty close by, and so um, they're really looking for farm areas with healthy wetlands uh, okay. for themselves. So that's really the key to their uh, their management is is having those uh, kind of integrated uh, landscapes. And and really, so much of our work right now, as the crane numbers grow, is is making sure that when cranes are on those farms, they're not causing any crops. Uh, any damage to to crops, and so a lot of our focus now is is how to prevent crane damage on crops in the spring. Uh, when they come in, they're looking for wetlands, and then they go up and they'll feed on freshly sprouted corn on those farm fields. Um, so that 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 is a lot of our focus right now is is how to reduce um, that crop damage and make sure that uh, cranes, uh, you know, basically that cranes stay welcome on those farms. And you said waste grains a number of times there. And is that just the leftover in the field or is there some process that the farmers uh, you know, practice? Yeah, nope, that's leftover, that's leftover grain in the fields after harvest. Uh, in some places, like um, around a bunch of national wild, different national wildlife refuges out west, they will actually deliberately leave extra waste grain, not harvest all of the crop, and leave it on the ground for cranes and other birds around uh, refuge areas, for example. And here, there's no specific program for that. There, there's not a program like, for example, where farmers are paid to leave uh, grain on the ground, though that could be an option one day as uh, crane numbers grow. But yeah, they're basically feeding on that grain that's left behind. And again, they, they feed on lots of other stuff. They love earthworms. Uh, they like grubs. You know, they'll eat on anything really anything they can find in those farm fields. And, and then, as I said, the, then our real target is in the month of May, late April and May, uh, when freshly germinated corn is popping up everywhere and cranes will go and start eating that. Um, and so we, we work to develop a deterrent that tastes bad to cranes, uh, so that uh, non-toxic deterrent uh, that you, you put on the corn and it tastes bad to cranes and other birds and they'll spit it out um, and the key idea there is, is they will they won't um, they won't leave the farm so it, it, it doesn't move the problem to another farm. The bird, birds will stay there, but instead of eating uh, the freshly germinated corn, they'll just eat other stuff. And so that's okay. that's kind of our goal. Not so much to move them from one farm to the next and just keep passing the problem around, but to to keep them on the farm, but not eating uh, foods that are sensitive and can cause real damage uh, to, to to a farmer's crop. Mm -hmm. That's a, a excellent. Uh, uh, that's a wonderful story about uh, coordination. Let me ask you um, now: uh, the upcoming uh, the Great Midwest Crane Fest. This is a coordination between uh, the Aldo Leopold Foundation as well. Right. Yeah. Well, we're really happy to team up with Aldo Leopold Foundation for this work. We've our organizations have been uh, good neighbors for decades. Uh, certainly plenty of crossover of individual staff and interns and so on, but we haven't worked together on a big uh, project here um, before, so we're excited to do so. Uh, Leopold Foundation owns lands right on the Wisconsin River where some of the very best crane roost sites are, um, and so it's a wonderful place to be out and seeing these cranes fly in 
uh, and experience them there. And then in the farm fields between International Crane Foundation and the Aldo Leopold Foundation, there's about five miles between us up in Baraboo. Those are the farm fields where cranes concentrate in huge numbers um, October, November. I've, just driving home on those road, roads in the evening, I've seen many thousands of cranes in those fields. Um, and so, you know, we share we share lands. We, we share the land ethics that the Aldo Leopold Foundation promotes uh, and, and under the good work and writings of Aldo Leopold, and um, we share the cranes. So we're, we're really happy to come together uh, for this festival and really celebrate um, these birds in our community. Uh, you know, as, as Leopold Foundation will say back when uh, Leopold wrote, you know, what I would argue is his most beautiful essay back uh, called Marshland Elegy. And it's really, it was really a, a farewell to cranes back when there were only about six pairs of sandhill cranes in all of, all of southern Wisconsin. Oh when he wrote that, I think most people thought they were going to go the way of the dinosaurs, the way of more recently birds like the passenger pigeon and all that we had lost. And um, and so uh, he was kind of penning this this final lovely uh, sort of goodbye poem, goodbye prose to the cranes. And uh, lo and behold, they turned around and came back. And so uh, it's fun to speculate on what what Leopold would think today uh, to have so many cranes, you know, not only recovering, but right on the Leopold Foundation property there. So um, anyway, we're, we're really, uh, uh, we really see eye to eye, eye to eye about the importance of healthy land, and we're excited to share this festival. No, this is November 10th to 12th, and, the, and by the water is right. where a lot of that is concentrated. Yeah, we have a whole bunch of activities planned around um, this festival, uh, and some of them include going out in, in what, what you call a blind or a hide, where you're in a, a confined space with a little peephole where you can, uh, you can sit quite close to the river and see the birds down there. Um, and then we have other activities where you stay a little bit further back of the sandbars uh, so you don't disturb the birds, but a little bit back from the river, and you can see them flying in in the morning or if you're an early riser flying or sorry flying in in the evening or if you're an early riser flying out in the morning from those Wisconsin River sandbars out to the fields where they feed and it's quite a, a lovely sight to see them flying over overhead whether you're you're tucked away in a blind or you're out standing out in the field seeing them fly over so we'll do those uh, uh, tours like that and then um, we'll also take people out of, into agricultural fields where the birds are in big numbers during the day and just talk about kind of cranes on the farm uh, solutions to help farmers uh, different ways to solve the crop issues and all that and then we'll also talk about their behaviors so you can kind of see what they're up to you can see where they're kind of battling with each other for space they're doing different threats at each other or uh, when a when a pair is doing it with this, what's called a unison call to show the strength of their pair, and sometimes they'll do these these pair bonds. A pair of birds will do this right in the middle of a huge flock of other birds, so they're kind of showing, hey, we're a couple here in this big crowd, and um, so we'll we'll look at those different behaviors and postures and and talk about cranes out on the land, uh, and then watch them fly uh, into the river. So, just some of the activities we'll be doing during the festival, but I think that'll be. Uh, quite a unique uh, experience for people who haven't been up in this area in the fall and realize just how many birds we've got here. What advice would you give to people at, at this point? Yeah, there, there, well, first of all, there's lots of opportunities to um, to learn about the birds, and you can visit us at the International Crane Foundation. will be open. You can also visit uh, the Aldo Leopold Foundation Center, their Legacy Center, 
learn more about the cranes. We will direct people where to drive in the surrounding landscape if you want to self-drive and see lots and lots of sandhills. Basically, if you travel between our two foundations, you can, in the right time of day, uh, you can see thousands and thousands of cranes. So even if you're a little bit more on your own, there's great opportunities to see the birds. Then we have um, oh, photography seminars on how to take better photos of cranes and wildlife. Um, both of our foundation sites will have tours uh, of our of our air, of our exhibits, uh, the wild birds, or I'm sorry, the, the captive uh, cranes at our place, and then um, also an opportunity to walk in the natural landscape of this area. So we'll tours of our savannas and prairies um, here. So there's a whole bunch of things people can do. Um, there's a couple of great films showing. Friday and Saturday night at the uh, University of Baraboo campus, what we call BooU. Uh, they're going to be showing films. Um, so there's quite a few activities to do up here. And I, what I would recommend for getting started is, is come visit us at the International Crane Foundation or stop at the Aldo Leopold Foundation and get a little sense of the lay of the land and some of the things you can do. Um, you can go online before then and see what things are sold out or not sold out uh, that you might sign up for still on the festival and uh but even if if the thing you most want to do like the evening blind is sold out uh there's still lots of great stuff to do up here and, and a great chance to really experience you know thousands of these birds on the landscape i think it's a, it's a nice opportunity to see see what we have here it's quite a show well thank you so much um i'll make sure that i put a a, a link in the posting so great yeah well, thank you very much, Rich. This has been uh, a wonderful talk, very informative, and, and um, I wish you the best for the festival this year. Thank you. We're looking forward to it. Hope to see many of you up. We've been speaking with Rich Belfus of the International Crane Foundation. Special thanks to the foundations, Hannah Jones and Maddie Tabi, for arranging this interview, and WORT's Shelley Pittman for airing the show. I'm Patrick Seibel. Thanks for listening. Up next is Radio Literature. Have a great night.